The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, well, there was a radical shakeup in the international development finance space. Again, something that we don't normally get that excited about. But given the fact that everybody is focusing so much attention on the issue of Chinese loans in Africa, when the United States actually steps into the game the way it has, uh, it does make some news. And it's also in the context of the broader U.S.-Africa relationship, which, if you recall, over, say, the past 12 to 18 months, really since the time that uh, that Donald Trump has been in office, but I would say that it even precedes Donald Trump in many ways, neglect for Africa has been a big problem in Washington. Uh, it's intensified uh, under the Trump administration in some parts because we heard about S-hole countries. I won't say the name because we're a family-friendly program. Um, the withdrawal of AGOA privileges for Rwanda, the imposition of steel tariffs on South African steel exports, and a general, what seems like a disregard for Africa. But enter the Chinese in this debt question, and the mood in, Ch in Washington seems to have changed. And they launched a thing called the Better Utilization of Investment Leading to Development. You gotta love American law. <laughs> that is the acronym, or the BUILD Act is the acronym for that. Again, Better Utilization of Investment Leading to Development. That passed the, the Senate, and it's now on its way to the president's desk for signing, and it will create a massive new U.S. government agency powered by $60 billion. It's going to be called the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. And COBIS, the D Development Finance Corporation, will combine the Overseas Private Investment Corporation that a lot of people have known as OPIC with the U.S. Agency for International Development's Development Credit Authority. So it's a part of USAID. Those two entities will come together. And the new agency will have enhanced development finance capabilities, including equity authority and a higher lending limit than what OPEC was able to do. We're going to get into the details of what this is. The bottom line, Cobus, is the fact that the United States is in the development lending space now in a very big way. This is very interesting. It really, it's, it's in the first place, it's a major overhaul of, of how the U.S. has done this kind of thing before. And it, I, it was also going to be an interesting kind of reshuffling of this particular landscape in Africa, where we've seen, you know, obviously China has been a very big player. Um, and we've also seen moves from, uh, from a lot of other, both traditional and, and emerging partners, development partners to Africa, um, stepping up to, to provide different forms forms of financing and business facilitation. So, for example, the German government has something called the Compact with Africa that they developed um, during their G20 presidency, which tries to facilitate 
business-friendly climates in African countries, and then at the same time connect them to to come to companies in Europe that could then uh, do public-private partnerships to boost investment, uh, infrastructure investment, for example. So it'll be really interesting to see how the U.S. slots into the system and how they're different and similar to some of these other people who are more who have recently become more established in this field. And there's definitely a lot of excitement in the United States about this. In fact, development experts are calling this the biggest change in U.S. development policy in 15 years. And in so many ways, just like PEPFAR, which was the Presidential Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, was a signature policy uh, priority for George W. Bush, uh, Donald Trump may get a lot of credit for, for actually laying down this much money and signing this into law. And it may be part of Donald Trump's legacy in Africa for actually building this. So we wanted to, we wanted to find out more about this and what it is, because we don't actually understand the details ourselves. So we said, let's bring back Aubrey Ruby, who is the co-founder of the Africa Expert Network and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and co-author of the book, The Next Africa Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us early on a Friday morning in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, so you wrote an op-ed or a column in the Financial Times back in August when this was making its way through Congress. And you and it said the new age, this new agency will boost U.S. investment in emerging markets. Since you are an advocate of the new International Development Finance Agency. Why don't we start our discussion today with kind of having you introduce us as to what is this new agency and why is it important that it kind of came to life at this time? Sure, Eric. And an update for your listeners, it actually has already been signed into law. Uh, President Trump signed it on October 5th as part of a larger uh, bill it was attached to. So it's now law and uh the policymakers in Washington are beginning the process of figuring out how to transition from OPIC into this new International Development Finance Corp, or the IDFC. Um, and this this new agency will be kind of basically a doubled OPIC, if you will. And it is uh, a very exciting development. I think it's not a once in 15 years uh, story for uh, the U.S. in terms of commercial diplomacy, but a once in 50 years. Um, so I remain uh, enthusiastic, and those of us who care about the Africa business space are very eager to see this up and running. Um, Aubrey, first, the first very basic question, does, um, does the new agency focus on Africa or does it focus on the developing world or, uh, you know, kind of the lowest income countries around the world? Like, What particularly will, will its focus be? Yes, so it focuses on lower income countries as defined by the World Bank. Um, and it's currently, you can imagine that it will reflect a lot of OPIC priorities, which is today OPIC uh, has about 27 and between 27 and 28 percent of its portfolio in, in African markets. So I think you can expect to see the same thing reflected with the IDFC. I still don't quite understand what it's doing here. Is it giving loans to governments or is it providing credit to American businesses to invest in these countries? Is it giving loans or credits to foreign businesses to do business with the United States? Can you walk us through the mechanics of what it actually does and how this will, this new agency will spend $60 billion? Sure. So it's dramatically different than, say, what the Chinese do with the China Africa Fund. This agency does not give to other governments. 
Uh, this this agency is development finance, so it can basically do two things. It can give loans um, and equity, so loan and equity products to uh, entities that have a major U.S. component, so like 51% owned entities that are doing business in uh, lower income countries. It can also provide political risk insurance to those same entities. So this is uh, supporting the business and investment sectors acting abroad. It does not give to uh, foreign entities or to foreign governments. Um, and does it have a particular target range of the kind of pro projects that it might invest in, or, or are any pro any projects open for for consideration? And also, how how will that the the, the decision making process work? So it focuses on areas which uh, follow kind of three principles. One, additionality. So it has to be proven that this would be something that the private sector wouldn't have done by itself. So the idea is it needs to, you know, help money go to places where it won't automatically go. So additionality, it needs to be catalytic. So it needs to encourage more money to go. Um, and it needs to kind of reflect U.S. Strategic interests. Now, that's a very vague category, um, but no, it doesn't have a sector-specific mandate. Can you give us an, uh, you know, just just an example of of what's what some some sectors or some kind of you know kind of categories of investment might be that would fit all three of those? So, for example, the new agency will do similar to what OPIC uh, did with debt products, but with equity, which is to kind of seed private equity funds. So imagine there's a new fund in the United States that wants to invest in, I don't know, uh, agricultural projects and agricultural businesses in African markets. Um, that fund, let's say they're trying to raise 100 million, that fund could be seeded by the IDFC by maybe a 10 to 20 million contribution of equity. And then those fund managers would go raise from the private market the rest of that 100 million dollars to go make those investments. So that's, a, that's seeding funds. That's one kind of category of uh, activity that the new uh, agency can do. The other thing would be to uh, make direct investments, say, for example, a renewable energy project in Uganda um, needs to borrow, I don't know, you know, $10 million to expand. That's something, and then it's owned by, 51% owned by Americans, then they could apply for OPEC uh, debt to expand that project. I, I guess, you know, it's it's very exciting to hear the way you say it because I, I read a number of different articles about it before we got, we got together today. And I was very interested in understanding the mechanics of it. And it's very, very different than what I thought it was. And I guess in some ways I'm a little bit surprised in part because Ray Washburn, who's the president and chief executive officer of OPIC, has been a very, very vocal critic of the Chinese. And one of the justifications for this this new agency was to present an alternative for developing countries to borrowing money from the Chinese. However, the way that you're laying, laying this out, it seems like it's a very different type of financial engagement with developing countries than what the Chinese do. It, it's not about giving a government a huge amount of money to build a port, a dam, an airport, a railway. This is about much more focused on private sector development and whatnot. So in some ways to me, just listening to you, 
it sounds like it's more complementary to what the Chinese than it actually is an alternative. And so I, that's where I'm confused a little bit by the, the comments of Ray Washburn. Again, just for full disclaimer, everybody who's listening to the program, Aubrey doesn't work for the U.S. government and she's not employed by the U.S. government and is not affiliated with the U.S. government. So I'm not actually expecting you to, to speak on behalf of the U.S. government. But what do you think of that context, that, that context of that what this new agency is, is complementary to the Chinese rather than competitive? Yeah, they're completely different models. Uh, the U.S. Uh, structures its commercial diplomacy and B to G or G to B, you know, government to business uh, relations completely different than the Chinese. So uh, they're night and day different models. And I don't see a, a conflict, inherent conflict between them. Um, this is a, you know, helping to catalyze the private sector abroad. It's really not about building infrastructure in a build own transfer kind of model the same way that the Chinese do. Uh, I anticipate a lot more of this going into financial services, renewable energy, a variety of sectors rather as, rather than being as concentrated as the Chinese kind of uh, financial flows uh, footprint is into African markets. So in, when these, these uh, American companies uh, start working in Africa, is there a regulation that they need to work with an African partner company or, or are they essentially free to choose whichever way they want to work? They are free to choose whichever the way they want to work. Um, you know, I believe that they're probably most effective with having uh, African partners and having uh, Africans in leadership or Africans in ownership. Um, but there's no regulation uh, mandating that. So just like the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summits that happen every three years and the headlines that come out of there are, how much money is China going to make available for Africa? $60 billion was the number. Conveniently, $60 billion is also the number that's being funded for this new IDFC agency. And I guess my question is that the Chinese put a set term limit on how they're going on how, when they're going to spend $60 billion. So it's in the next three years they're going to do that. This $60 billion fund that's with the IDFC, is that is that going to be renewed or does that grow? Is there a term on that? How does that compare in, to the Chinese $60 billion number? So some of this has yet to be determined. Um, the It still has to be appropriated. So the bill has passed and become law, but that does not mean money has moved uh, to this new entity uh, overnight. It has to be appropriated in the next fiscal year. Um, and then it becomes the agency's discretion because, again, they are making these investment decisions on uh, commercial terms. They're understanding the viability of the particular projects that are proposed to the agency. So it's not um, a, a necessary uh, reality that they have to push the money out like the Chinese. I would also contrast the fact that this will be a fully audited um, agency. They will have annual reports that they will put forth. And we all, as, as uh, observers of the space, will get to see how the money is used, which, as you know, is not always the case uh, when it comes to the Chinese uh, financial flows into African markets. Um, you mentioned that that one of the one of the um, stipulations is that these projects should um, should be in accordance with U.S. strategic interests. Could you unpack that a little bit? Which particular strategic interests are are being considered here, and and how how is that being delineated and understood? 
Well, in the act, it is pretty general. Um, if you and everyone can read the act, I invite them to do so. Um, it starts on page 775 of <laughs> HR 302. Um, <laughs> Some so light bedtime reading. Can, Everyone's downloading it as we speak. You can, you can <laughs> Google right. that, and it's pretty straightforward. Um, in the kind of preamble of of the act, um, it talks about things that you know investments that can help. Um, support democratic institutions, for example. Um, it talks about investments that are done in, in concert with, for example, allies or like-minded institutions. So there's definitely a view that this new agency needs to work alongside the Europeans um, and, and CDC, for example, which is the, the UK's uh, DFI. So uh, there's a very general framing of US strategic interests but not a, a specificity as you might want. I mean, All of I that will I'm... come out in the um, kind of operationalizing this uh, vision. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. I'm a little confused right now. And you're in Washington and you have a very good sense of the mood in Washington. But the White House has made no secret of its disdain for multilateral organizations. It's made no secret of its disdain for aid and development financing, um, all variations of it. Um, it's really made its feelings known about the Europeans, Angela Merkel, even now to some extent Emmanuel Macron in France. Um, and so you're talking about these multilateral organizations, partnerships, promoting democracy. Those are not the priorities of the State Department and U.S. foreign policy at this moment right now. And, I, and how does this, how do these two kind of line up together? Because you have a president who is very, very assertive in representing his base in saying, we're America first, we're not necessarily going to be doing work with multilaterals and partnering with allies if it's not 100% in our interest. And yet what you're talking about is a much more collaborative culture that doesn't seem to be the mood in Washington today. And to add to your list, uh, Eric, of surprises, note the fact that um, when the Trump administration came uh, into to power here in Washington, that the Overseas Private Investment Corp, OPIC, was actually zeroed out in their budget. So this is a surprise on that level as well, because it went from zero, the agency was going to be killed, to uh, $60 billion, to being doubled. So, um, so can I put the devil's advocate on you that it had nothing to do with development and nothing to do with helping developing countries, and it has everything to do with you know, rivaling China. Because that's what Ray uh, Washburn yes, has kind of presented that, uh, it in some ways, and that's why it came alive this year because of the rivalry with China. Yes, I absolutely believe that the kind of uh, impetus for this was uh, defending commercial diplomacy globally in the uh, face of a rising China. Absolutely. It's framed like that. In the thinking, there's actually a within the preamble of an act uh, of the act, a clause that I refer to as the China clause that basically says um, that this is to give, you know, um, companies an alternative uh, development model to those who are state led and authoritarian. 
Um, so it's, it's, yes, the impetus is kind of anti-China and doing America first in the face of anti-China. So, um, but, you know, there are a lot of uh, technocrats and there are a lot of staff people and there are a lot of, um, I don't know, civil servants who want to see this work. And they know that working in concert with established uh, DFIs in Europe uh, makes sense. So I think you see a little bit of both in, in the act. Um, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if from the African perspective, um, it would not be seen as a as a either China or the US situation, but but there'll be lots of lots of attempts to get to get support from both sides. Um, how open do you think the agency will be in either maybe even collaborating with Chinese um, you know entities or to you know live in coexistence with them in in the African space? Well, I think that there's no alternative to living in coexistence. These are just economic macro realities. And, you know, from the African perspective, it's great because African companies, African countries have a greater choice of partners than they have um, in the decades past. So they can choose uh, mechanisms from China. They can choose uh, the Europeans, the U.S. They can even look to uh, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, Turkey, other partners. So. I think from the African perspective, it's definitely a win. Um, going into whether they can collaborate between this new agency and the Chinese, I, I think it's unlikely because the mechanisms are fundamentally different. This is a, a private sector first. It does not give uh, financing to infrastructure projects um, in the same way. Um, and so I don't think they can collaborate because the methods are so very different. I agree. I think it's supremely exciting that there's more choice for African companies, and particularly because the Chinese have focused so much on the public sector, to now give the private sector, which has long been starved of capital. I mean, if you're a private sector company in Africa, borrowing money for expansion is extraordinarily difficult. The capital markets look at you with an enormous amount of risk. So this ability to tap yet more money to grow and to develop and to partner with American companies is great. And seeing the Americans actually get engaged in Africa policy, something I know you've been fighting in Washington for for a long time, is also very exciting. But let me again bring up uh, a, a, some criticism that I'd like you to kind of respond to. Ed Cropley, who is the Reuters Africa Bureau Chief, he tweeted out this tweet, and I'd like to get your take on it. OPIC prides itself on turning a profit, he said. In the last decade, OPIC has paid back $3.7 billion to government coffers. This suggests its terms may be less generous than the concessionary rates granted by Beijing. Forgive African governments for not rushing to sign up. Now, it sounds like he may be misled because it's not African governments who would be signing up at African companies. But what do you, how do you respond to the idea that this is really a for-profit exercise for the United States government? Yeah, so the IDFC is a uh, commercial entity. It is uh, a concessionary commercial entity. But like other DFIs, it seeks to make investments and to, to get return on those investments. And by doing so, you're kind of harnessing a um, enlightened self-interest. That's the aim, that you're going to make good investments and not just throw money away because you're incentivized to actually make a return on those investments. So I support the mechanism. Um, and it is not about concessionary lending to governments. It is about um, intervening in the markets on the margins to ensure that investments are both catalytic and happen 
and they're additional to what would already happen from the private sector. So it has to, by nature, be somewhat concessional, because if the private sector was already going to invest in, say, a Liberia or Sierra Leone, they would have. If um, they come to the IDFC, it's because there are some market failures there that are preventing them from doing so. So by partnering with development finance institutions, they can overcome that market failure or that over um, mispriced risk and then actually invest. So there's a real development outcome, but this is sustainable. It's sustainable because they do make money. They can keep doing it forever and ever. It doesn't have to determine based on, on the politics of the day. Speaking of the politics of the day, have have you? Uh, how do you think this is? It's um, the kind of what kind of domestic reception do you think it'll get in the U.S.? What we've seen in China over the last while has been increasing pushback from from uh, you know popular voices within China against spending large amounts of money in in Africa. Um, do you foresee? I mean, you know, we we are going through through an era where where the U.S. is rethinking its international participation on lots of fronts. Um, how do you think it'll play domestically? Well, I think so far it's been a positive reaction in in the Washington space. I don't think it's uh, well known nationally yet about this new entity. Uh, the law has uh, has stated that there's 120 days from the sign of time of signature. So basically the 120 days have already started between uh, OPIC as it operates today and standing up this new IDFC. So I think it'll become more national awareness uh, in the course of this next four months. Um, but I do think that there is uh, a view that the U.S. needs to be stronger internationally and do more in terms of commercial diplomacy. So I think that aspect will be um, fairly popular. It did pass, if you look at the Senate vote, um, it did pass at 93 to 6. So this is a bipartisan supported bill on um, both sides of the aisle, both extremes of both parties supported it. So you have very um, kind of Trump leaning uh, Freedom Caucus Republicans who got behind it um, to very liberal Democratic players who are behind it. So, so it really Cobus, is a bipartisan support. Let me let me translate that for you, because that may be words you don't understand. Bipartisan in America <laughs> is something that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> yes, I mean, no, when no. was the last time we actually <laughs> heard <laughs> of a bipartisan piece of legislation? I mean, I can't even think of one. Uh, it, that, yeah. that by itself deserves the Nobel Prize. Uh, what a remarkable accomplishment. Yeah, um, and that, question. for example, is very um, true to Africa-oriented things in, in Washington. If you look back over the last uh, two decades, you'll see that the AGOA Act, for example, was always bipartisan. Almost everything that comes around Africa has had this unique quality of bipartisanship. Is that because the stakes are so low? I think it's partly that. I think it's, um, you know, I grew up in Colorado and we have a saying that um, there is a river there that is a mile wide, but an inch deep. And so I think the Africa tent can often bring in a, a mile wide of support. And, and but it, it's often the case that people don't fight for it deeply. And that's often why certain things didn't get passed. So, for example, when I first came to Washington in 2004, we put OPIC expansion into drafts of AGOA. In starting in 2004, but that was stripped out every year um, and because people didn't want to fight over of the nature of OPEC. It's only because the kind of macro perception of competition with China that this was actually fought for at a deep level. 
So let me understand, last question for you here, uh, what the objective is in one, two, three years from now. The idea is that now the United States is back in the game for development finance. So African countries like Rwanda, Botswana, Tanzania can tap into these great rivers of American finance and will no longer need to rely so much on the Chinese. And that will reorient these countries into America's strategic orbit because you talked about strategic interest being a priority here. Is that the long-term vision or actually the near-term vision for this in the next one to three years? Yeah, I think that is the vision. I would say that it, it just functions very different. One, the Chinese system is way more top-down, government to government, and that kind of influence. This will take a very long time to change views because it's company by company. Those companies have to have American partners in order to access the financing. So it's causing B2B relationships to get made. And it's a very, it's a slower mechanism and it's a more diffuse and bottom up mechanism. Um, but I think that is the aim to feel that there is uh, an alternative method towards development uh, than the one that the Chinese kind of put forth. So we've been talking about the better utilization of investment leading to development. I love that name, by the way, ACT. That's the BUILD Act. Aubrey Ruby is a longtime supporter of the act. She wrote an article or a column in the Financial Times back on August 8th. New agency will boost U.S. investment in emerging markets. As you know, as you can hear for the past 25 minutes, she is an expert on this and really a, a very strong advocate of American engagement in Africa and also uh, for American re-energizing American development finance. So, Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the kind of the debrief and breaking it down for us because, again, for us, it wasn't even clear. So I could imagine for even more casual observers, it was it was very confusing. What if people want to follow what you're reading and writing? What's the best way for them to stay in touch with what you're doing at the Atlantic Council and also uh, with your various different projects that you're doing? Thank you, Eric. Um, it's a pleasure to be on. I uh, am writing a report right now, actually, on the new IDFC that is a result of the BUILD Act, and we hope to launch that report in the coming weeks um, that will give a lot more detail to development finance and even share some of my ideas on how this can be shaped over the next four months. And the best way is to follow me on Twitter, um, and my hashtag is at Aubrey Ruby, uh, last name H-R-U-B-Y. So thanks again Excellent. for uh, having me on today. Well, we'd like to have you back in six or nine months and kind of do a check-in to see how it's going. And we'd like to kind of get a progress report uh, from the African side as well to kind of see what the reception is, because this is a very different model. The United States has done some of these initiatives before with Power Africa, where it brings together public and private uh, partnerships. So it's going to be fascinating to watch this unfold. Aubrey, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Cobus, I don't really know how I feel now after listening to Aubrey about the Build Act. At first, I was much more skeptical. I kind of came into this with an idea of like, you know, I heard all the anti-Chinese stuff coming out of Ray Washburn and the Americans, and I think Aubrey addressed it saying this is really the motivation behind this was to counter China. And I and I brought a lot of that skepticism that I don't think this is going to help the developing world. I think I thought it was, again, like what Ed Cropley at Reuters, I thought this was going to be a government-to-government -government type of thing. Uh, but after listening to Aubrey break it down, I'm excited the fact that there is going to be more money available for African and South American and South Asian businesses. Uh, that is a good thing. However, I think there's a very important caveat. She said this is going to be very, very slow going. 
This is relying on American businesses and African businesses to make decisions. Those decisions don't necessarily neatly line up. When the Chinese government says, we're going to build a road, a railway, a port, boy, that thing gets done. And it's done on a 12 to 24-month schedule, and you have your railway. We're talking about really negotiating contracts and doing a lot of background information and, 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 and research and whatnot. And, that, and this is, again, not in the control of a government. So it brings me back to Power Africa. And Power Africa was President Obama's initiative in Africa, which was apparently going to be this, like, I think 14 or 7 or $14 billion uh, power generation initiative that was going to marry public and private uh, businesses together and, and the governments in Africa. And it it went nowhere because it depended on American private business. And there was a lot of talk, a lot of hype, but at the end of the day, it was, it was kind of an empty promise. And I, there's a little bit of my concern that I'm hearing in this as well. Well, you know, it, it's interesting for me to compare it with the German compact with Africa because the one element that, that doesn't seem to be, you know, very much considered in, in the American side is is the particular particular economic and business climate in the African country. Um, so obviously one of the problems of doing business in Africa is that frequently it's it's quite a weak regulatory environment and it's, you know, there's, it's, a, it's a weak governance environment. Um, so what the Germans are doing is that they're working with, with African governments to try and get their business climate more business friendly, um, particularly making businesses feel more secure in terms of, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, property rights, intellectual property rights, um, you know, taxation regimes, stuff like that, all of the nitty gritty things that they would have to have to comply with when they're doing business in Africa. And then they're, they're also identifying and providing data with what, what kind of particular projects are possible um, in particular African countries. Um, it seems to me that that the the responsibility for dealing with those those kind of those issues seem to fall more on the American business side. It seems to be, and I mean, it'll be very interesting to read the full the full text of of the act and to see you know what they have in mind specifically. But it it sounds like there isn't this kind of government intervention to make sure that the that the the um, business environment is is supportive enough to 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 support long term investment, um, and you know from the African side, I think the German approach might is frequently maybe seen as a bit paternalistic, but then you know it, it also it, it, it's a way to try and fix the situation where you would have you know all of the investment flowing to countries like South Africa that that where where all of these networks are already set up you know where it's easy to do international banking for example and not to places like like Togo for example where a lot of these of of these systems are not really very efficient um so it'll be very interesting to see how this business facilitation side of it works now i know that in order to get this thing passed in washington today they had to frame this as an anti china thing that's just the nature of the political environment in Washington today. But it kind of annoys me in one level because it really, it's not doing anything to counter China in one sense because they're so different in how they're approaching this. You can see how Togo, as you, as you kind of pointed out, Togolese companies can be engaging IDFC and Togolese government entities can be engaging the Chinese government and the, the CADF, the China-Africa Development Fund, and what we saw just recently, the China Exim Bank just granted a $300 million loan to the Africa Finance Corporation. 
so there's going to be money now coming in from the Americans and the Chinese from all sides. And in so many ways, they're actually complementary to one another and not competitive. And so I just, I don't understand, I know, I understand the politics and the optics of framing it against the Chinese, but in reality, it's actually something that complements what the Chinese are doing. There's public financing coming from the Chinese to build infrastructures that the Americans won't build. And then there's private financing to help grow companies that the Chinese are still, for the most part, reluctant to do. And so it actually, they go together well. So Aubrey's enthusiasm, I think, should be really kind of focused on here because this is good for Africa. Very, very good. Yeah, very good. I think I think this 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 could be, as you say, really good news for Africa. Among others, because say for example, if you look at a, at a, at a more specific example, you know, China is putting in data networks all over the all over the continent. Um, you have in 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 the process this we've seen the development of of um, new kind of a new silicon. So they call it a silicon savanna. Like outside of Nairobi, um, you know, where there's, for example, fintech, like financial technology um, companies are, have, have started to set up shop there, providing um, applications that specifically focus on African users. And they, of course, work on Chinese networks. And if, if, this, if the Build Act can facilitate them, you know, kind of setting up relationships with actual Silicon Valley, um, you know, and, and rolling out some of those on the back of Chinese networks, like from the African perspective, this works great. You know, this is, there's no problem yeah, there. No, it's, it's, it's fantastic news. We have some good news from Africa today to report, actually. And I think this is one of our more optimistic shows. And in this day and age, you know, optimism is in rather short supply. So, but what do you think about it? Do you share Aubrey's enthusiasm that this is a, a great thing and this is the United States getting reengaged? Or that those were strategic interests and Donald Trump's tweets and Ray Washburn's hostility towards the Chinese and real, you know, polarization in his politics. Do they give you some doubts? And also, have you lost faith in America in Africa after what we saw with the S-hole, Nambia, the withdrawal of, uh, of Rwanda from Agoa and the steel tariffs on South Africa? All of these together have painted a picture that is not too favorable to the Americans. So is this something that will turn it around? We'd love to hear what you think. Lots of different ways to get in touch with us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, email. Uh, so we invite you to join our discussions uh, that we have. And also, just quickly before we go, Copus, I want to give a, a, a shout out to a few of our fans. I uh, I just got a new dog. I'm very, very excited about it. We have a puppy. <laughs> and so I took the dog to, uh, to our vet in the neighborhood here in Shanghai. And uh, lo and behold... Uh, Dr. Dusan Kladar is at uh, Beck and Stone Veterinary Clinic here in, in Shanghai. And uh, he, you know, introduced himself as a huge fan of the show. And <laughs> so I just was blown away. And that <laughs> yeah, was completely I'm blown very, away. It, I, I owe Dr. Dusan a beer because he really impressed my wife, who, uh, you know, was like, actually, somebody, somebody's actually listening to the show. So that was <laughs> exciting. And then I also want to give a shout out to the Shanghai chapter of the Young China Watchers group. Uh, I gave a talk there uh, recently and there was just an amazing reception and just people were so enthusiastic and so eager to hear about China's engagement in Africa and the developing world. And so uh, hats off to the Young China Watchers in Shanghai and thank you so much for the invitation. It was fantastic to meet everybody. Okay, we're gonna leave it there. That'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the program. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project 
to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.